<clears throat> okay. Um, hello. Welcome to I Care So Much, a podcast about things I care about and why I care about them so much. Um, I'm your host, Andrea. I've really got to work on a better tagline, but until then, that's going to be it. <laughs> um, before we start, um, my powerpoint presentation about yearning in period films i wanted to say thank you if you listened to my first episode which um admittedly was a big hot mess but thank you um i i really appreciate it um especially since i'm starting out with this and um you know no one is required to listen to anything i make um but i really do appreciate it and if it's your first time listening hi hope you're doing well and thank you for tuning in so as i just said today we'll be talking about yearning period dramas and why these two things are a perfect storm for a perfect movie um for me at least um this is just a friendly and I think, um, I'm gonna have to repeat this very often, that I'm not a film critic, (laughs) I'm not a professional in any capacity, and these are just my personal thoughts. Um, and also this episode is not spoiler-free for all of the movies that I'm gonna be talking today, which are Pride and Prejudice, The Handmaiden, Jane Eyre, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Emma 2020, so if you don't want to be spoiled, please watch these movies and then come back. Um... I also want to say that I've actually written a script for today, um, for this episode, because I feel like my last episode was super off the rails, and I was jumping from place to place, so if it sounds like I might be a little bit robotic, that might be why, but, um, hope you will still enjoy, regardless. So, the movies that we're going to be talking about today, as I've said, are Pride and Prejudice, um, Handmaiden, Jane Eyre, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Emma. So period drama films um are some of my favorite films period sorry um i know that most people don't like historically situated films if they're not accurate um if they're not about world war one or world war two or if they're not filled with tragedy and gunfire um i also know a lot of people just don't like historical fiction in general but I, you know, I do enjoy a good war film. I did watch Dunkirk <laughs> when that came out. Um, but I am here today to talk about period drama films and why they are so damn good at expressing how to yearn. I also want to say that, you know, I'm going to get up on my soapbox here. Romantic films are not to be scoffed at. I know most people, um, and it's they're usually men, do not like watching romance films, but here's what I have to say. What do you gain by avoiding them? Is love, you know, too soft and too gentle for your masculine heart? Is watching people fall in love not manly enough for you? Um, I would argue very seriously that love is just as dangerous and powerful and bloody as any other action film that exists when it comes down to most films and television shows. What drives a lot of violence and destruction is because of love. Um, I think you could pick almost any action film and that would be true. But I digress. So what do I mean when I say yearn? 
I know that term has been thrown a lot about sorry I know that term has been thrown around a lot by moody teenagers on tumblr or lonely college students on twitter or me when I'm not at the receiving end of a crumb of attention but what I mean when I'm talking about yearning is I'm talking about desire I don't mean fucking, I don't mean having sex, I mean desire, I mean wanting a deep connection with someone. Like, have you ever started laughing with a friend or with someone you love and it slowly devolved into laughing for the sake of laughing because you want to hear someone that you love, you know, chuckle or giggle or laugh? Have you ever turned to someone that you love, not to say anything, but just to look at them and to fully realize the insane luck you've received to be able to look at someone so beautiful have you ever feel felt a hook reach around in your chest and pull 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 super fucking hard when you've fallen in love in my opinion that's yearning and i love it when films are able to express this emotion super super well um because i think that's all we want i think that's a lot what a lot of people want they just want to be loved they want to be seen they want to be heard but why am I arguing that period films in particular are so, so good at portraying yearning? Arguably, period films are the best at portraying yearning and desire. But why? There are hardly any sex scenes and they're not particularly steamy. Um, the films, um, these films don't really function around the end goal of sex, um, but rather marriage. So how do these films portray desire and love without the usual elements of sex or physical contact? Um, the films I'll be speaking about today have three main elements in common that make them a poster child for yearning, and obviously there are um, unique qualities for each of these films that make each of them enjoyable in their own way and make them unique um, and special, but when it comes down to the love story in each of these movies, they do it well because of these three elements, sound, gaze, and progression. So, sound is obviously an important aspect of any film. Movies are ultimately, when you boil them down, are they're, they're moving photographs that combine the power of sight and sound to create stories and themes. Um, but the soundtracks in these films are all magnificent because of their impact in conjunction with all the other elements of the film. But for sound, I will be focusing on Pride and Prejudice and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. To demonstrate how sound um, functions in these films. So I don't know a lot about composition, I don't know that much about music, um, I don't know a lot about how movies are scored or about how certain pieces are composed, but I will be talking about how these scores and how these, um, how the music makes me feel. So you know, while my extensive eight-year background in playing piano from ages 7 to 15 cannot speak to the technical prowess of the composers, I can speak to how they were able to tap into my emotions, how they were able to make me cry, and how they were able to actually get me more invested into um, the film. So Pride and Prejudice has a beautiful soundtrack. Um, I would argue that this film is a perfect film, um, but the soundtrack, along with how some of these scenes are lit and um, directed, are uh, quite honestly exquisite. <laughs> the tone of each scene is perfectly set, and the composer, Jean 
I'm gonna butcher it. I'm so sorry. I'm I'm just a stupid American. But um, whenever Jean Yves Thibault Day, um, whenever his score um, is playing on screen, it heightens. It emphasizes. It truly adds to the tone of each scene. So, Darcy's letter um, is a piece that plays under the very you know, famous rain scene between Keira Knightley's Elizabeth Bennet and Matthew McFadden's Darcy, and it spans from that scene all the way until um, Darcy's explanation of Wickham's true nature and his um, duplicitous na- his duplicitous actions and stuff like that. So the beginning of the scene um, starts with Darcy's letter, which is the name of the piece. So that piece heightens the suspense and tension with a gradual rush of strings. As Lizzie and Darcy confront each other, they're screaming at each other, um, and then it quiets and starts up again. Quiet um, at first, more somber, more gentle, when Darcy leaves the letter for Elizabeth to read. um, And we see a shot of him on his horse, um, kind of like going back to Pemberley. I think um but yeah it gets more somber more gentle and just like very serious once he's describing in the letter how Wickham toys with Georgiana's feelings and left once he realized that he wouldn't be gaining her inheritance um I think this is masterful I think the impact of this scene is powerful because the music is not just there to fill the pauses in between conversation, it's heightening the emotion already present in the scene. It's playing off of the anger that's growing as Lizzie is unable to be um, diplomatic towards Darcy and um, her indignation is growing when, as this, as this um, piece plays. And so the music is building off of the calm and earnest way in which Darcy abandons his pride in his letter to explain his connection to Wickham, how he tampered in Bingley's love life, and ultimately how he offers a humble apology. The music here is serving to emphasize the the theme underpinning the entire film. Darcy is trying to abandon his pride to clear up Lizzie's prejudice of him. And so the combination of the acting from Knightley and Darcy with the editing... Did I say Knightley? Oh, sorry. The combination of the acting from Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden with the editing of each shot and the layering of music and voiceover, to me, that is cinema. That is cinema, baby. And this film is a classic example of how um, this film is a classic example of a slow burn. Um, Lizzie and Darcy's mutual attraction for each other doesn't really, you know, come into play until maybe three fifths into the film, which is a lot of the film to like, you know, go without your main characters actually falling in love. But I think that is due in part to how the film sounds along with how the actors are directed. Um, that's why slow burn is so good because you, you build investment into how these relationships are growing and how they are built. And then when it finally happens, it's like the payoff is so, so good. Um, okay. And so the next film I'm going to be talking about when it comes to sound, 
um, is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. If you haven't seen it, you have to see it, especially if you're a gay person, you gotta see it. But um, I think it's one of the best films, quite possibly, of all time. And so Portrait of a Lady on Fire, directed by Celine Sciamma, is, um, uses music as a plot device and um, kind of as like an emotional callback. So the presto from Summer, from Vivaldi's Four Seasons, is introduced early into the film. Um, it's when Mariana is playing the song, Marianne, sorry, when Marianne is playing the song on the harpsichord for Heloise. And... Um, she's talking about how she wants to go see it being played at the opera, and she describes the song as a storm, as, as sounding like a storm. Excuse me. Which I think is a pretty accurate description. Uh, the buzzing of the strings when they're struck in quick strokes creates a tense and heavy atmosphere, um, and as the pitch increases, it's imitating how rain sounds when it falls in quick succession, like during a thunderstorm. Um, and this is the song that comes back to us at the end of the movie, after we've experienced the love story, after we've experienced the highs and lows of their relationship, um, and as we experience them kind of coming apart and coming to terms with the fact that they won't be able to see each other again. Um, and so this is the song that Heloise cries to at the very end of the film when Marianne spots her across the opera house. This is a song that holds the memories of a love that was never able to fully live up to its full potential, but was a love that was lived with the same intensity and passion as a storm. Um, and this is very interesting because then this song, this musical piece, becomes a symbol of the time that the two women spent together. You could argue that, um, you know, putting the film in at the end, f putting the, the music in at the end again could be emotional manipulation. It's trying to trigger, you know, the memory of um, everything else that happened in the rest of the film. Um, but I would actually argue that it's a very intelligent choice by um, Skiama, the director, to revive that song one last time because it is realistic, baby. Um, if you've ever been in a relationship, if you've ever been through a breakup, if of any kind, it doesn't have to be romantic, it could be, you know, a friendship breakup. But haven't you ever enjoyed a movie or a song or a show or a piece of art or media with someone? And then when that person leaves your life, your memory of enjoying that piece of art or media is forever intertwined with the person you shared it with, with the time you spent with them or the relationship you had with them. That is why, you know, when you share these things with someone, it kind of sucks because when they leave your life, you're like, well, now I can't enjoy it because it reminds me of this person, it reminds me of the time that we spent you know, um, you know, watching something or reading something or listening to something and it reminds me of the person that I was with but I'm not with anymore or that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I think that's why I cried at the end of the movie to this song because it is like that. It's like reliving a breakup all over again. And it is especially painful in the context of this movie because they can't be together because they're both women. Because, 
you know, that wasn't accepted at the time and still isn't accepted in some parts of the world, in some cultures, and some people. Um, and that is what is so painful because if, you know, the world could have gotten rid of this, you know, misogynistic um, and gotten rid of this, like, toxic masculinity and gotten rid of this idea that, you know, men are the, you know, head of the house and that, you know, women have to get married to men in order to advance themselves financially. If we could have gotten rid of all of those things so much earlier, then, you know, this wouldn't have been so tragic. Um, and I think that's why, you know, this film is so powerful and that's why this piece, this song by Vivaldi um, makes the film that much more tragic and sad and beautiful. Yeah, I really do love films. <laughs> and I love Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it, yes, if you haven't seen it, please go see it. Grammar's hard for me today. So the next aspect I want to touch on is gaze. Um, we talk about the male gaze all the time. We talk about the female gaze. We talk about gazing at someone. Um, but today I just want to talk about how gaze as like a concept <laughs> is very important in period films particularly. And I'm going to be using The Handmaiden and Jane Eyre to kind of explain this a little bit more. So because of the context of the period or the time period that these films take place in, desire between two people can only really be expressed through meaningful glances, extended hand clasps, playful banter. Um, people couldn't really express their desire openly by kissing or having sex or, you know, hugging or, you know, very obvious physical touches. Um, so it had to be done in more surreptitious surreptitious ways um like letter writing or lingering touches or meaningful gazes um and this is even more secretive when you factor in same-sex attraction which applies to the handmaiden and porch of a lady on fire um and it's for this reason i think that actors in period dramas have to be stellar at expression through body language and facial expressions because you can't really hug someone or kiss someone in these dramas um in these films because it doesn't really call for that um you know desire and yearning or they're all gazed in furrowed brows or shaking hands or hovering presences and The Handmaiden, directed by Park Chan-wook, is great for this reason. The scene that I'm thinking of when I am talking about this, when I'm thinking about this movie, is when Hideko and Suki are in the bathroom, and Suki, played by Kim Teri, is talking to Hideko, played by Kim Min-hee, and Hideko says she has a toothache, so... Um, Suki grabs a thimble to shave down the sharp tooth that's cutting into Hideko's gums, and then when the camera move it, and then it's at this moment that the camera movement changes, the the shot changes. So um, the camera moves as if it's in Suki's perspective. It's looking at Hideko head on with um, her flushed face and her naked body, and the camera is moving from Hideko's face to her chest, and then ultimately this raises the sexual tension between the two of them um this scene is so powerful because you know at the time this film takes place during the japanese occupation of korea um at the time you know it was very common for you know 
maids to see their um the master of the house like naked it's like not a big deal um but that's kind of changed a little bit here because this is the scene where Suki is realizing is beginning to realize her attraction towards Hideko she's like looking at her naked body she's looking at how innocent she looks because she's sucking on a lollipop while sitting in a bath um and so this coupled with Suki's voiceover and Kim Teddy's masterful acting this scene is able to communicate so much without explicitly saying anything um this film very similar to Pride and Prejudice um it takes so long for these two women to verbally admit they're attracted to each other and that they care about each other but as a viewer because of scenes like this we're able to see that Suki is attracted to Hideko and cares for her long before she actually you know explicitly admits it because of how her gaze pierces um with desire and because of how painful she looks um when she sees Hideko with a man um movies like these are so great because the reason why film can be so great is because you don't have to say everything with dialogue you have moving pictures you have a motion picture to help you communicate those unsaid things and that's why actors really good actors are so great because they're able to you know communicate all those things in glances or in touches or in how their body moves um and I think that is just really powerful (laughs) I think that ability to communicate in that way is so powerful and that's why all the aspects of film are so interesting because sound contributes contributes to this um how something is edited contributes to this voiceovers how a set looks how it's lit um how a shot is composed these are all things that add up to um making a great film so the next one we're gonna be talking about is Jane Eyre um Jane Eyre is one of my favorite movies in general and it's one of my favorite books in general um you know as with a person that has um a degree in English right now um yeah I can firmly say that Jane Eyre is probably one of my favorite books ever I think you know there are aspects of it that are you know obviously very dated um because of the time that it was written in like 200 years ago but like the general themes of that book how that book is written um how the character is so internally strong and bound by internal constraints that she mm, kind of makes herself i just thought was so so interesting um, and so the Jane Eyre adaptation I'm going to be talking about is the one from 2011, starring Mia Vashikovska and Michael Fassbender, and it's directed by Kerry Fukunaga, with a score by Dario Marinelli, which is, I think, one of the best scores ever. <laughs> um, I listen to that soundtrack whenever I want to feel deeply, deeply sad. Um, but I love this film, not because it's super historically or textually accurate, but because it's thematically consistent, and it's such a beautiful film in every definition of the word. Um, the acting from Mia and Michael is incredible. Um, one of the most powerful thing, one of the most powerful scenes is, um, when Jane interrupts Rochester's time 
with Blanche Ingram, who is a young woman hoping to marry Rochester for his fortune. Um, she is kind of like the foil to Jane's character. Blanche is like beautiful and like pr- like prettied up, like gussied up, I guess. Um, she um, has like beautiful gowns. She's dressed so pretty. Like her hair is always like in some sort of like fancy um, popular style. And she's generally very liked by everyone even though she kind of has like a dark side where she's just very greedy and power hungry um and jane on the other hand is this very plain (laughs) um very plain she's kind of described as not very good looking in the book um and like all of her clothes are very dark or very plain um very boring colors She, she has her hair up in the same kind of um braided bun all the time and she's also um the governess at the rochester home which puts her kind of like below normal people because she's technically um a worker um she's like kind of like considered like a maid or a cook so she's not really of any importance to other people um and so in this scene jane is interrupting his time with blanche ingram to ask him for time off because she has to go back home to her sick aunt um and besides the fact that michael is so incredibly charming in this scene um it's enough to make anyone swoon it's also mia's ability to make her character soften that makes this scene work very well they're able to banter back and forth about the money she's owed by rochester there is a moment where he says like oh i don't have he's like okay so basically like she's owed like 15 pounds for her um work and he's like oh i only have 10 pounds and i only have a 50 pound so i'll just give you a 50 pound and she says oh that's like way too much like you i don't like i don't want to owe you back so just give me the 10 pound one and he's like will that be enough for your journey like i don't know that that's okay and then she's like no i'll take the 10 pound one and then you can just owe me five and then he like kind of smirks and he puts the 50 pound note in his um chest pocket and he's like i'll keep it right here um and then i'll owe you and she'll be like yeah you do owe me and there's it's just like such a beautiful moment where he's handing her the 10 pound note but he's like refusing to let go of it and she's like what the fuck's your problem and he's like please like promise me that you won't stay too long because i don't want to miss you and she's like what the fuck (laughs) she takes the 10 pound note because he finally lets go and she's like i can't really promise that and um i don't want to break a promise so i'll just say that i'll try to come back as soon as possible and he's like okay like hurry back miss you already kind of like vibes um and that creates such great romantic tension um it's so sharp you could truly cut yourself on it um and like the way that he looks at her he looks at her like she's the sun and like she looks at him like she's like the ocean and she's he's the moon and she's gravitating towards him it's incredible he looks at her like she's the only woman in the world and while jane is really really oblivious to his love for her because he's she's very convinced that he's going to marry blanche ingram um her mia's ability to like have like nuanced expressions is so powerful because she's able to like look like she's in pain even while she's like attempting to smile um 
yeah, they gravitate towards each other. They the chemistry between these two actors, between these two characters is so powerful. And, you know, this is an audio podcast, so there's only so much I can describe. There's only so much of a picture I can paint for you. So I am begging you to please watch this movie. Um, Even if you hate it afterwards, you can at least say that you've watched it. Um, Because I truly think it's a beautiful film. And especially if you like romance films and, you know, if you like period films, I think it's a beautiful film. So the last thing I'm going to talk about is progression. And I'm going to be talking about Emma, the most recent um, adaptation of Emma that just came out this year, and Pride and Prejudice once again. So what do I mean when I mean progression? What I mean is that I'm talking about how realistically the story moves, how realistic it is that we should be rooting for these two people to fall in love with each other. Um... And Emma is a great example of this. The book itself is, of course, wonderful. Again, written by Jane Austen. But this movie is incredibly... Incredibly? Sorry. It's very, very interesting. Um, So Emma has a really great love story progression. Excuse me. And Emma 2020 is in particular is great because of how stylistic the shots are and how aesthetically different the movie is when it comes to period films. And this is not to bash on normal period films, but Pride and Prejudice has a lot of like yellow colors because a lot of it takes place outside. Um, they kind of live like in the countryside and um, the colors are not very different. It's usually like pale whites or creams or yellows. Um, There's not usually any bright colors, whereas in Emma 2020, the colors are bright. They're bright teal, it's soft pinks, it's dark whites, it's muted blues. Um, The shot composition is very interesting. A lot of the shots are stationary in order to exaggerate how um, antsy Mr. Woodhouse is or to emphasize how vast a space is or how small someone is within a big space or to imbue some comedic levity. Um, but the story between Emma and Mr. Knightley is so good and so believable and it progresses so realistically because they fight. Um, this is a couple that's always in conflict with each other. They argue and they bicker and they bicker and they disagree and they get mad at each other. Um, but they love each other because they fight because they care about each other. They fight because they want to see each other grow. Um, and they fight because they're not really afraid of each other. There's nothing really to be afraid of when, you know, you're talking to someone that you trust and that you respect. Um, and the first hint that they both realize that something might be between them is when they dance together at a ball. So after the ball ends, um, it's like supposed to be 5 a.m. in the morning. They were dancing until 5 a.m. Um, and there's a scene where Emma is sitting in her carriage and she's waiting to go home and she's looking out the window of the carriage and her eyes meet Knightley's. And there's like a moment where it seems like they both want to say something to each other. Knightley like takes his hat off and he like his mouth just like begins to part and Emma's like looking at him like expectantly but then like the carriage moves and she like drives away. Um... This scene is so powerful because it says so much about the characters and how they both realize there's something's going on. And even though, like, their friendship is so close that they could talk to each other about anything, this is, like, the one thing 
that they can't talk about with each other because they don't know how to say it. And it says so much without having to say anything, and it builds on the relationship that they've established throughout the whole film. This scene happens about maybe three quarters of the way into the film. Like, the film's almost done at this point. Um, and this tiny, short scene forces us to see, forces us to want to see what's going to happen with their relationship, to see if their love and affection for each other will be brought to the forefront. And this kind of vibe is very similar to Pride and Prejudice. So listen, I know the hand flex scene in Pride and Prejudice is the most textbook <laughs> definition of what yearning looks like, and I do agree, you know, I go ape shit every time I see that scene, or I see it reproduced, or I see someone react to it. Like, I feel the same way. Like, if if that happened to me, if, like, this guy that I thought was a dick just like um kind of like escorted me into my carriage and his hand lingered a little bit too long and he looked at me like that I think I too would fall in love just a little bit like at least a little bit like I'd be like he's kind of a dick but that was kind of hot I truly do go apeshit every time I see that scene um but the lingering glance between Darcy and Lizzie is so so good (laughs) lizzie looks so confused whereas darcy looks almost determined like he's like i did it i i did it like i expressed something there um he's making a statement with his gaze alone he's saying actually i'm attracted to you and i want to show it in the most 19th century way possible by holding your hand for a moment too long um again like emma this is a couple that is at odds with each other for the first half of the film before their defenses and their walls come down and you know it's the title of the film pride and prejudice it's all about getting over your pride pushing away your prejudices your preconceived notions in order to see the person without any of these kinds of like extra lenses or extra filters um and to also just see that person and to realize and admit you're actually not so bad and i'm kind of madly in love with you um when a couple starts out in conflict with each other you have to ask yourself why am i supposed to be reading for them what is interesting about two people hating each other and then getting together but again it's that age-old enemies to lovers trope this this idea that you've seen all the worst parts of each other you're intimate with the most ugly and intimate parts of each other and that intimacy that vulnerability makes way for real love for a chance at real love for friendship um it's about bearing the most annoying the most unbearable the most ugly parts of yourself to someone else and asking would you still love me after seeing all of that It's true in Pride and Prejudice, it's true in Emma, it's true in Harry Met Sally, and it's true in countless other romance films. So, I I know I talked a lot today. Um, I think I might have talked a little bit too fast, but um, I love period films so much. I, I love period drama films, I love period romance films, I love period romance drama films, um, and I hope it's been made a little bit more obvious after what I've said today um I love romance films not just because um you know I was born a girl but because I have always been interested in how romance is portrayed and how people come together to form you know a powerful relationship 
where two people can truly be at home with themselves and truly be um, at home with each other. Um, And period films are a really great example of that because, you know, in a world or in a time before, you know, kissing someone or having sex with someone before marriage or, you know, touching someone even was really socially acceptable um, between men and women and then also how that's coded um with you know between people of the same sex it's very interesting to me because how are you supposed to you know build a romance film without all of the other without all of the physical markers of attraction without someone being able to like touch someone without someone being able to make the first move and kiss someone and you know very admittedly uh, kisses do happen in each of these films that i'm talking about but they only happen until after marriage or until after um you know the verbal admission that they're attracted to each other um a lot of the end game for these movies are marriage because you know that's kind of that was like the pinnacle of your life at the time was getting married and perhaps having children um and the marriage part is not really what i'm so interested in even though you know subconsciously that's what the film what each of these films kind of which each of these with the exception of the handmaiden and portrait of lady on fire the more traditional period films um the more, sorry, heteronormative period films have marriage as an end goal because that is, you know, a heteronormative thing and that was also a fixture of novels at the time was, you know, the novel ends when someone dies <laughs> or when someone gets married or when someone grows up. Um, and the marriage part, again, is not what I'm so much interested in. It's about how these people come together. Like, the marriage part is, like, the happily ever after for me. Like, okay, that's great. Like, in my heart, like, I know that in the story, they end up happy together and they fall in love with each other. But I love seeing how two different people can can come together and create, like, a beautiful, beautiful relationship. So I hope I've, you know, at least partially convinced you. Um to watch at least one period film like these are all great and you know i'm really glad that my selection here is at least a little bit diverse because i think that period films you know very rightly are criticized for being very white very heteronormative um very upper class but things like pride uh, movies like pride and prejudice they touch on class differences and about um the um the kind of like social norms at the time and Jane Eyre talks about class a bit as to, a bit as well and also touches on like a woman's place in the world there's like a great line in both the book and the movie where Jane is talking about how she's so tired of like being a woman not because she hates being a woman but because she hates how she's defined as a woman men are able to go out and have a full life and able to travel and do whatever they want whereas women are you know limited by their gender and she expresses how like she wishes to be able to see a vision or um kind of a life beyond the horizon 
and I think for like a 19th century book that is incredibly progressive for the time in a time where you either die an old maid or you get married to someone and have kids and die or you know you are defined by marriage you're defined by your connection to a man um I think that was a really progressive idea at the time um and you know in portrait of a lady on fire they challenge that idea as well they challenge the idea that you know you should be falling in love with a man um that you should be tied to a man and that like idea of heteronormativity is what makes the the movie itself so tragic because you want to see these two people together because they clearly love each other and care about each other and are connected to each other um but they can't be together because of the norms at the time because of the you know homophobia so yeah um (laughs) i don't know how to end these naturally but um i really love these movies i love a lot of movies and i hope you will you know stick around with me as i explore why i like so many movies um yeah um thank you for listening if you've stuck around i really 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 appreciate it um yeah i hope you have a good day stay well stay healthy wash your hands um wear a mask please and i hope you have a good day